Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, May 5th, we're studying Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. St. Paul has made his case that all people are unrighteous, but God in his righteousness freely justifies sinners in Christ. Since God loves to forgive and we love to sin, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Let's just keep on sinning, right? St. Paul answers this emphatically in today's text by reminding us what God has done for us in holy baptism. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. As we get started today, Pastor Andrews, give us a bit of context here in the the book of Romans where Paul's been laying out his argument. We've seen it the first three and a half chapters. All people are unrighteous, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the works of the law. We see it in Christ Jesus. What do we need to know going into today's text? Well, you're giving it a great introduction. Um, This theme of righteousness that flows through the whole book, the whole letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome, as we get a little closer, as we move into chapter 5, we're looking at this this idea that we are reconciled, we have peace with the Lord through our faith in Christ, uh, which was basically the Reformation revelation uh, 500 years ago. But as chapter 5 progresses, we then see that that more so that we have death ourselves. Our death is in Adam, but in Christ is where we have life. As we get into our text today, Paul's really going to expound on that. Um, he's going to call us to die to ourselves and to, to realize that we are alive in Christ, and that we should live as though we are in Christ. Hmm. Uh, those, those words, in Christ, with Christ, are key words here, especially in Romans chapter 6. He, this is a phrase that Paul loves to use elsewhere in his epistles and, and throughout the book of Romans, but particularly in chapter 6, the fact that we are in Christ or we are with Christ, this is this is going to be a key to the whole chapter, and especially these, these first 11 verses. So let's go ahead and, and dig into the text here. We're in Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the text for today, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So, Pastor Andrews, the text starts with what we've got today with a question from Paul too, in fact. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this isn't the only time that he's asked questions. Sometimes the the letter to the Romans, and I think this is true of other epistles as well, takes this very conversational tone, perhaps. What what do, what do you make of that? You know, it's one I haven't given as much thought of as maybe I should, but Paul asks a lot of questions here in Romans. Uh, you know, we see it in this chapter, but throughout the letter, I haven't gone back to check his other letters to see if he's asking as many questions there as he does here. But it does, I think it gives us the opportunity to look at and consider how these New Testament books were actually written and how they were shared, how they were passed around. Uh, You get the opportunity to think of Paul writing this, knowing that it would be sent to his brothers and sisters in Rome, knowing that it would get read aloud to the congregation. And, you know, so you wonder with this first verse, did the reader pause? (laughs) Did he allow the congregation, the members there to to dwell on these questions at all before just continuing onward. Um, yeah, it's, it's neat to consider. Well, and, and we do, we would say that, that these letters in the early church use of them would have been, I mean, when it got to Rome, they would have read it in a, a public worship setting, correct? Right. So basically, if you haven't given this much consideration before, Paul would have written this down, or maybe not Paul himself. Uh, many of Paul's letters, probably written by somebody as Paul, spoke it out loud. He had somebody that could scribe it for him, which leads you to the ending of some of them, like Colossians, where he says, see how I write this with my own hand. Um, but he writes it, gets it ready, sends it to the church, And then as the church comes together, as they gather together as the body of Christ in that place, that letter is read to them aloud. Uh, So the congregation, they get to hear it. And unlike in our church services today, where this could be an example, we would read Romans 6, 1 through 11. They read the whole letter. They get the whole, whole gist of it. They get the whole context of it. And more so because they're, they're, they end up being, personal letters. There's so much in this that uh, impacts them directly because Paul is writing specifically to their congregation. He knows what's going on there. They've corresponded back and forth in several several of the instances. So, yeah, beneficial things. And then as the Church has read the letter, they often end up sharing that letter. So they would make copies of it. They'd send it off to other congregations in other places, keeping a copy back for themselves so they could reread it again at a future point. That's kind of how we get to the scriptures that we have today. Our New Testament was put together based on which 
letters the churches had in common. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, everybody's got a copy of this book of Romans, so this one's important. Let's include it. Mm. Yeah, the, this these questions here, you know, I mean, we know that that Paul, in his ministry in the book of Acts, he would go to the synagogues and he would reason, he would argue with them. And and you're right, in our in our context today, when we think of uh, a worship service or speaking the gospel to someone, it, it often tends to, well, we often, I think, picture like a sermon, right? And, and that's not that Paul wouldn't have preached sermons. Certainly he did. But I think the picture that you get in some of his, his preaching from Acts is that it was more back and forth style that he he was actually reasoning with them at that moment and and answering the questions that were coming back at him such that now it now would the romans have done that with whoever was reading well maybe not but but perhaps what we should picture in our minds here is that paul is writing down some of these questions that he actually had faced in presenting the Christian faith in, in other places as well. And now he's writing that for the, the benefit of the Romans, that these are objections and questions that he knows are going to come up from the preaching of the gospel. And so he's going to, to write that down and answer it here in, in Romans. So, so with that in mind, that sort of that setting then, let's, let's talk about the question that comes up. So chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. What What's the gist of this question that Paul is proposing here in verse 1? Well, the first thing to note, and, and this is so true throughout the Scriptures, and especially with Paul's writings, is he loved run-on sentences and just to continue thoughts from several verses before. The, the introduction here, what shall we say then, is the wonderful tie-in for the reader at home, encouraging us to actually go back. All right. I'm just starting at Romans 6 today. I probably need to go back and look at chapter 5. What's Paul getting at? Why is he saying, why is he reintroducing something here? Um, Paul does that quite a bit. So Paul is bringing us back into chapter 5. He's bringing us back to the idea, I'll just read the last couple of verses from 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I think the key, which plugs into the question in in verse 1 here, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Well, you know, if that's true... One of the, as you said, the examples of Paul's previous opportunities to teach and the kind of the feedback he was getting and the responses and the questions from people. If it's true that grace increases when I sin, should I sin some more so that grace increases all the more? Because, I mean, grace is this wonderful thing. We want more grace. So, do I get more grace by sinning more? That's kind of the direction he seems to be going with this question. I think you phrased it in the intro, and I've heard it phrased that way before. It's, it's like this great deal. God loves to forgive. We love to sin. Uh, so it's a, it's a match made in, in paradise right there, but that's, that's not what it is. Um, you know, you punch your brother, God forgives you. If you punch him twice, God forgives you twice. But we don't want to 
we don't want to intentionally sin just so that God can forgive us. That's not what Paul is trying to teach us here. Um, there's a, a term that gets thrown around in theology about that called antinomianism, which essentially just means lawlessness. A um, couple of Greek words put together, anti means instead of, and namos is the word for law. So instead of the law, in place of the law, we have something else. And in this case, it's just really recklessness, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, knowing that God's going to love you and forgive you anyway. And that's that's the picture Paul is responding to. So there's there's the picture. Just do whatever you want because God's going to forgive anyways. It's, I like I like the way you, you phrase it. You know, lawlessness increase, so grace increase. So so okay, well then let's just keep raising our lawlessness so God can keep raising His grace. I mean that that does sound like a, a great deal for us. But but Paul very clearly has has another idea. How does how does Paul respond to this question? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, I believe the Greek is meganoita, by no means, may it never be, uh, however you quite want to translate that forward into English. It's a, it's a phrase he enjoys using. Uh, he uses it ten times in this letter alone, um, and it's got some emphasis to it. It's emphatic. If your, your English translation doesn't have an exclamation point behind it, it probably ought to. Um, you can picture Paul as he said this kind of responding with a, a raised voice as he, he utters those words. Mm. No, this this isn't what we're supposed to do. We are not made for this. Mm-hmm. Right. No no way, Jose. I'm not sure how strong we can be on the radio with our with with certain language, but but think of, of the strongest right. way possible that you can tell someone no and and that's that's what what we're talking about here. And you're right. Paul likes to use this phrase to be very emphatic. Don't don't even think of it. I, I'm I'm reminded of perhaps a, an equivalent is in the in the baptismal rite when we say, "Do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all his works? Do you renounce all his ways?" Yes, I renounce them three times. In other words, we want absolutely nothing to do with the devil, his works, and all his ways. Paul is, is putting that to this question. We want absolutely nothing to no nothing to do with that sort of attitude that would simply increase sin so that God can increase his grace. That's he just puts it completely out of the picture with this phrase. And and so there's his response. No way. Not going to happen. Nuh-uh. How does he how does he then begin to build his case that that's the correct answer for this question? Well, you know, the basic argument for it that he could have made isn't really even here. I mean, what is our sin? Our sin is our rebellion. It's our um, rejection of God. And so when when we would stop and think of it that way, should we continue to rebel against God? No, (laughs) by no means. But Paul's going to go in a bit of a different direction. He's going to go, he's going to continue, I should say, uh, with the language that he's been using in the previous parts of this letter. So his next question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Um, at this point, he's starting to be rhetorical. But it introduces the idea that's going to really carry the rest of the, the text that we get to discuss together today. You are dead to your sin. Mm-hmm. You're not living in it anymore. In fact, to be in sin is to not be alive. That's one of the things that comes out as the text progresses. You you have life in Christ. Apart from Christ, you don't have life. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's where this argument is going. You've mm-hmm. died to your sin, and you're you're alive in God. So mm-hmm. live that way. So the Paul's. I mean, he starts again with this this rhetorical question: How can we who died to sin live in it? And yes, this is the 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 motif that we're going to see throughout this is what does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to God? And, and how have these things happened? And, and how is that having ongoing effects in our lives as Christians? And, and Paul's going to ground all of it beginning in verse three in holy baptism. So, so what is, what does Paul have to say about baptism here? Pastor Andrews. Baptism gives you this wonderful gift. I mean, we talk this way within our churches, and you know, we, we preach it, we, we share it in Bible class, we talk to our kids, we, we do confirmation, we, we bring up baptism again and again, but it's hard not to. Baptism is this incredible, wonderful gift, and it becomes so easy for us to overlook because it's a one and done, you know, unlike the Lord's Supper, that other sacrament where we take of it as often as we can. You're baptized once, and for many of us it happened when we were children, we don't even remember it. But Paul's going to connect all of this, he's going to root it all into your baptism, where you were united with Jesus. That's almost marriage language, you know, you think of being united with your spouse, your husband or your wife in this world, and you get to spend the rest of your life together. That's not an unfair way to talk about this. I mean, we are, the scriptures say, the church is the bride of Christ. In your baptism, you were made a part of the family. You're in. You you are now the bride, and you get to live with your groom for the rest of your life, and in Christ, that life never ends. You get to live with your groom forevermore. So lots of different scriptural pictures with baptism, that imagery of family. You're a child of God. He's been adopted into a family. Hmm. You've been made part of God's kingdom, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, This is what the Lord gives to us. And so as we talk about what baptism is, what baptism does, we rejoice that in our baptisms the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. We rejoice that faith is created. We rejoice that our sins are forgiven. Baptism is a indeed a wonderful, wonderful day, not, well, certainly for the one baptized, but also for the whole congregation, the whole community that gathers around together as their family is enlarged. It, you're right that there are tons of scriptural images for holy baptism. You, you mentioned being brought into the family which I think is the one that's that's at play here, and I'll come back to that in a second. But other ones include the picture of, of clothing. That's that's part of it. Being incorporated into the body of Christ. That's another one. And and closely related to that body image is this matter of of being in the family. And the reason that I think this would this passage fits into the the picture of God's family is because what Paul says baptism does for you here is that it unites you with Christ. And and Paul particularly wants to emphasize the fact that baptism unites you with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so if you've been united with Christ, who is the Son of God by nature, 
then then you are now a son of God adopted into the family because you're connected to Christ. Now you're connected to God's family. So I I think that's that's the main image that Paul is drawing on here for baptism, but he's he's especially emphasizing here this union you have with Christ. And and I appreciate the the thought of 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 the marriage imagery too that that we are united with Christ so that what is his now becomes ours which is what happens in a in a marriage that that the groom Christ what is his becomes ours and that's what happens in holy baptism that everything that is Christ's now becomes mine and now becomes yours in holy baptism and and particularly again Paul wants to emphasize here the death the burial the resurrection of Christ so that and and, and pastor Andrews you, you use the phrase one and done with baptism it's it's one and done with baptism in the sense that you are only baptized once but it's not one and done in the sense that it happened for me many, many, many years ago, and it has no effect on my life. Far from it. Baptism has a great effect on my life right now. Uh, I've, I've probably said quite a bit, Pastor Andrews, and maybe I've taken us away from the text, but but feel free to, to, to respond and, and maybe draw us back again into what Paul's saying particularly about baptism here when it comes to death, burial, resurrection. Well, first I'll respond to what you were just saying. You know, I was baptized on June 19th, 1988. It's been a while. Um, but it does, it has an ongoing impact on my life. You know, we, we have this in our theology and our, our theologians have, have shared neat ways for us to consider this. Martin Luther always encouraged us to, to daily drown ourselves, not literally, but to drown the old Adam that is within us. Remember your baptism each and every day to put that old Adam to death so that you might live for Christ instead. Uh, I had a professor at the seminary named Dr. Kolb, and he, in one of his lectures, would share this idea that you would, as you took your daily shower, remember your baptism. We can talk about baptism as the Greek word does. It's a washing. So in our baptisms, we are washed clean of our sin. Uh, We are washed clean of our our original sin in the sense that that rebellion against Christ is forgiven. And so... In your shower, as you are being washed clean, um, you can recall, you can remember what Christ has done for you. Uh, so there's some wonderful imagery that we can make use of uh, daily in our lives. You know, anytime you see water, you can do that. I, I don't know for certain God's reasoning, but it seems sensible enough. He picked water to go with baptism because it's so common. You're going to use it. You're going to use it every day, and so you can remember it every day, uh, what the Lord has done for you through the gift of water. So, yeah, as we, we come back into what Paul has been, been stating here, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so he's expounding on that idea that we've died to sin. You have died to sin in your baptism, where you were buried with Jesus, you were crucified, your sin put to death with Christ on the cross. Now, as you mentioned, you're also resurrected with Jesus. So you've died to your sin, now you get to live this new life, this new creation, to use some of the language Paul uses in his other letters. 
Um, you get to live this new life in Christ. You get to live this new life before your neighbor, um, which is going to be important as well. So we had a, a first birth, if you want to think of it that way. Um, we are celebrating the birth of our fourth daughter. But when you are born into this world, you're born perishable. You're born into death. But this new birth, this new gift of life that we have from God in our baptism, this one is imperishable. I mean, what a gift as we get to to live forevermore and really live that way even now. I mean, this body is still failing, but I am still called as a child of God to live as though I am part of that family, as we've used that family picture. The the talk about the the first birth, second birth, I think is is very helpful here. Jesus in John chapter three, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he he uses that language, and there's a bit of a play on words there in the Greek. Is is Jesus saying to Nicodemus that you must be born again or born from above, or is or is there a bit of both going on? Nicodemus there in John three clearly takes it as again, because he thinks he's supposed to somehow go back into his mother's womb and be born again. Jesus, it, it seems, it, I, I, I would say, and I know that's not the text in, in question today, but I think it relates, that, that Jesus would, in, in the new birth, in the being born again, the key, as you've pointed out, is the source of that birth. Is the source of that birth this flesh, this sinful flesh, which that's the first birth, or and this is what Jesus would, would have us look at in baptism, is the source of that birth from above, that it is, is, this is God's own doing. It is his action. And because it's, it's his action, that makes this baptism, this birth, imperishable. It comes from above. And that's, I mean, just, and just to, to put a bow on things, at least on this side of the break, Pastor Andrews, when it comes to baptism right here, the thing I, I, I want us all to see is that, Baptism very clearly is portrayed here as something that God is doing for us. He is the one who is uniting us to Christ, making Christ's death our death, making Christ's burial our burial, and making Christ's resurrection our resurrection. You, you can't read this passage honestly and and see it as see baptism as just some kind of a symbol. This is God's action for us, and, and we need to take that break. Pastor Andrews, I'm going to let you, I imagine you might want to say something, because Lutheran pastors often like to talk about baptism. But we're going to pick it up on the other side of the break here on Sharper Iron. You are listening to us here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, May 5th. We're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor Steve Andrews of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we left off talking about baptism, a favorite topic of, of yours and mine both, I know. And and the, the language that Paul uses here when it comes to baptism is is very striking. I've had confirmation students, uh, scoff's not the right word, kind of be taken aback a bit at some of this language. You know, when you look at a baptism, it's a it's usually a, a child, a baby, who's having water poured over their heads. It, it seems like a, a pretty nice Kodiak moment. Kodak moment, not Kodiak. Kodiak is the island. Kodak moment. Seems like a nice Kodak moment. But Paul says, this is death, burial, and resurrection. What? I mean, what? What's? why such stark terms here? Well, stark terms to get us thinking about the stark reality uh, that we face, that we're living in. And I think our, our current culture, what we're dealing with as a nation as a whole, and really globally at the moment, shines some light on this. You know, we live as Americans in this idea that death is kind of out of sight and out of mind. We don't want to think about death. And so now all of a sudden, our present reality is is starting to bring us face to face with death. And we have responded with a great amount of fear and panic and not knowing what to do, how to respond, how to handle it. And that, I think, helps us to see why, as you mentioned, your confirmation students have a kind of a shocked reaction to this this picture, but it's not it's not even just a picture. This actually is the reality. In our sin, in my sin, in your sin, we have rebelled against the God of heaven and earth, the the one who made all of this. You know, step out your front door and look around. <laughs> the one who made all of that simply by speaking. And we rebelled against him. In our sins, we're dead. And yet, we have this wonderful promise that Christ died on the cross to forgive us of all of those sins and that he has risen again to give us that gift of life. So we talk about death and we talk about resurrection in the church because not only is it real, but it is also our real hope. Um, so your your death is, is it's coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. The best medicine in this world can't stop it. But in Christ, you have the promise of a resurrection, that the, day, the decaying and dead body that lays in the ground will be brought to life again, will be raised up. I mean, every time I do a funeral at the, at the graveside when we get to the cemetery, I always include this. Imagine what this place is going to look like when Christ returns on the last day. Every single grave here is going to open up. And the people who you know, the people whom you have loved, they're going to come out of the ground alive again because of what Christ has done for us. And that is what happens in our baptism, as we are brought into that family, 
as we get to share in that inheritance, whatever is his is ours. His life is now your life. Mm-hmm. That's a, a it's a great way to think about these things. The and going back to that that talk the the picture language talk that we were talking about earlier family of God here perhaps another another picture that we could bring out then is that in baptism what God does for us is He brings our funeral to us early or He brings the day of our death earlier you might even say He brings judgment day to us early and and He judges us for the sake of of Christ. So, so we've died, we've been buried, and, and we've been raised with Christ in our baptism. All of those things that, that you, you associate with, with your death, with judgment day, God brings them to you early in your baptism so that on the last day, when, when judgment day comes for everybody, you know what the reality is going to be. You know what the verdict is going to be because it's already been pronounced upon you. You've been judged righteous for the sake of Christ. You've been made alive because you were united with Christ in holy baptism. His death became yours, his burial became yours, and his resurrection is yours. You are now alive, and on the last day, that resurrection will be made a full reality in your flesh, as you were saying, Pastor Andrews. And this this text, particularly verses three through five, is a fantastic one to use in, in funerals. It's used it's used in our funeral rite that we have in the church, it, at least the way that we do it here at Grace, is we I speak the verses three and four. No, I speak verse three, and the congregation responds with both four and five together. What what a marvelous hope that is ours precisely at a Christian funeral. Because we we know that the person who has died yet lives with Christ and on the last day will be raised in the flesh with Christ because because baptism, because God has has united this person to Christ in holy baptism. It's just a, like I said at the beginning, (laughs) we could talk about baptism for a long time, Pastor Andrews. So, Pastor Andrews, take us take us then into into verse five, particularly because we've been talking about this. You know, this has happened to us in baptism. We are united to Christ. His death, burial, resurrection—they belong to us now. But in in verse five, Paul also uses, and I should add because this is going to become important. These these things that God has done to us in baptism matter for the way we walk in this in this newness of life. This is this is going to be the reality because again, remember Paul's answering that question: Should we just keep on sinning? Well, no. The way that we walk, this is all the grounds for the way that we walk. But in in verse five, Paul says we will be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So it it seems that there's a, a present tense reality, but there's also a, a future tense reality going on here. Take us into that, Pastor Andrews. No, good. I mean, we've got really a both and on what you were just talking about. So you look at it, we were dead with, we are dead with Christ, and yet we're alive with Christ. We were buried with Christ, and yet we're raised with Him. So that that feature of the, the text playing on itself there, um, Paul discusses this in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. Mm. You know, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead... Our faith is futile, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And while that's past tense for Jesus, in this text it becomes future tense for us. We're not there yet. We are there, but we're not there. 
as you mentioned with baptism, it's like judgment day, fast forward and came early. And now you're alive forevermore. We're there, but we're not there. So we've come up with this now and not yet phrase to describe this. Paul is calling us alive. He's telling us to live as though we are dead to our sins, but yet we're not fully there until the resurrection happens on the last day. So you're alive right now, but life really only happens in Christ. You're to live apart from sin right now, but that really only fully happens after Christ returns and fulfills, fully finishes uh, what he has begun for us um, as he has brought us into into that family. Um, so it's a picture that Paul will get a little tongue-tied over in chapter 7 as he he's going to he's here in chapter 6 calling us to no longer sin to not live in that but instead to live in Christ and then in chapter 7 we get that section that really hard to memorize uh, the good he wants to do he doesn't do and the bad things he knows he shouldn't be doing those things he keeps on doing one of the ways that i like to think about this this tension between now and not yet as you said is to think about it is the life of faith right now versus the life of sight that is still to come. So all of these things are true for us right now. In my baptism, I have died with Christ. I have been buried with him and I have been raised with him and I live in him right now. But that gift is mine right now by faith. I don't, I don't always see it right now because I do still sin. I struggle with sin daily. As you pointed out, that's where Paul's going to go in chapter 7. But that that reality of what I see doesn't change the reality of what is true for me in my baptism right now. That is is mine by faith right now. And on the last day, I will I will see it, and it will be fully realized in that sense. It, you're right. It's, it's very difficult to talk about right now because both of these realities are, are happening to us at the same time. But the fact that we are in Christ, this is what Paul is is urging us to focus on and to fix our minds on. And, and as he will say, as he's he said, this is what we are to, to know. He's going to start talking about this multiple times. We know that this is true. We know that this is true. And, and perhaps a, a, a way we should think of that is, is we, we trust that it's not just a, it's not simply a, Oh, that's a nice fact, but this is a, the defining reality for us is that we know these things. So he, he starts to make that move in verse verse six, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Help us into this section, Pastor Andrews. So so verse six, that I think the phrase that jumps out is that idea that we're enslaved. Hmm. I think that should catch most readers today. But it's the truth. How how are we enslaved? How did we become slaves in the first place? How did we get here? Because um, we just talked about with the death and the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, we're united to all of that. So now we've got this crucifixion part that freed us from our slavery. We we became slaves willingly. When we entered into it, we thought that that would be good. 
uh, for ourselves. And that has really a deeper discussion probably on the topic of original sin that we could go into. Um, the idea that even from the moment that we were conceived, so we talked earlier about being born, but it goes back further to, you know, roughly nine months or so uh, to the point where we first really enter into this creation. We already stand opposed to the Lord and would rather trust in ourselves um, than trust that he will provide, that he will care for us. So Paul here is saying that that old self was crucified. It was drowned. It was killed. So that our sin would be brought to nothing. Our sin would be put to death. I think you're you're right again to take us back to that conversation about the the being born or being conceived as a part of this creation, this broken creation, this sinful flesh, as as we said. Well, what what has to happen? Well, that that sinful flesh has to die, but not just die, but to die with Christ. All all sinful flesh is going to die, but but only the sinful flesh that dies with Christ. Is going to be raised with Christ, and that I mean, I think that's that's a key thing in verse six is that our old self was crucified with Him, with Christ, so that we know well what's coming. As He said in verse verse five, resurrection is coming, so that new flesh will be. I mean, in that you know, in order that the body of sin might be brought, this body, this this perishing body of this of this age, it it only knows sin. And, and this verse is, is in hope of that resurrection so that my new body that he promised, the body that is like his own body, incorruptible, imperishable, that body's coming. It will know no sin so that we're no longer enslaved to sin. For, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 7, take us into that, Pastor Andrews. Verse 7, I think you could read that in two different directions. Uh, it's kind of a double reading. You think of the actual physical death in the moment when your body ceases to function. I guess most most theologians would say that's the moment where sin does cease for you. That's not really the, the direction Paul is going, though. Paul, in continuing what he's already been talking about, this theme and this idea that we're buried with Christ, that old sinful nature has been brought to nothing. That old sinful nature has been put to death. So this one who has died is not a reference to the physical grave. That's a reference to your baptism. You have already been set free from your sin. You're no longer a slave to your sin. And that's why we can then move into verse 8 and see that we now also live with him, not for ourselves, we live with Christ. So take us take us then into verse 8, because there is that connection, right? One who has died has been set free from sin. So if we have died, and here's that again, we've died with Christ. There, There's the key, right? We've got, it has to be a death along with Christ. So that, as he says in verse 8, we will also live with him. Take us into that verse. All right, and we have past and future here again. So not only have we died, as you said, we died with Christ, that's past tense. That's already happened. It happened in your baptism. But now also you live with him. Um, that's a will also. So it's, it's future tense in its grammar. Um, probably present and future would be the fair way to say it, as, as we have 
have that life in Christ already now. It's kind of interesting to think about. Uh, I've been convinced of it probably more so lately. The only true life is the life that we have in Christ. You know, we think of life and we start to think of the world that we live in now. Oh, what's it mean to be alive? Well, my heart is beating. I'm, I'm drawing breath. I'm able to get up in the morning and do the things that, you know, that I normally do. Whatever that may look like, it looks different for, for most people. But this isn't really life. Life is with Christ. Life is in Christ. Um, and apart from Christ, there is no life. Uh, so there's some great scriptures on that, um, but kind of get at this idea. So John chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So those who have faith in Christ get to live. Those who didn't, it's not that they're... It's not that they disappear. They have life in the sense of what we think life is right now. In a way, um, they're still, they still exist, but it's not really life because it's without Jesus. John 6, 3, he, he continues, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you have no life in you. Or in Colossians 3, 4, um, which was also in one of our scripture readings in church just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, when Christ, who is your life, appears, are the words that Paul shares with us, our life is Christ. It's with him, it's in him, it is him. And that's the, the beauty and the promise that we have as the bride of Christ or as the family of Christ, that we have this wonderful gift that we actually get to live but it's only life because of him. And we have that. We have that even now. I think Paul in the Colossians text says that that life is hidden with Christ in heaven. Um, Christ is in heaven. You know, as we think of him seated at the right hand of God, he's, he's holding that gift for us. He's keeping it for us and we are with him. Right. Yeah. That, that Colossians three passage was the epistle reading on Easter Sunday for the three-year lectionary. And you're right, that verse 3 there is just as important as as verse 4, that right now your life is hidden in Christ with God. That That's where your life is, and it's hidden right now. And none of this, none of this is to say that our physical lives right now don't matter. Our physical lives do matter. They're the physical life is that we have is a gift of God. The fifth commandment is given to protect that life and to uphold that physical life. God, God very much cares about these bodies that he created, but he also knows that these bodies are going to die. And, and if these bodies die without Christ, then after that, there is only death. And, and it's only, only when in these bodies we have Christ that we truly do have life. John, uh, John 17, I think it's verse 3 in the high priestly prayer, where Jesus says, well, what, is it, what does it mean to have eternal life? Oh, I'm going to look it up so I can get it right here. John 17, 
Jesus is praying. He says in, in verse three, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That's what life is, is, is Jesus. <laughs> and, and that he is what we have in our baptisms. And, and that baptism that is, that is connected us to his death and so connects us to his life. And that's the eternal life. So, so that, and, and this, this is where Paul goes then in, in verse, verses nine and fall. He grounds all of this in what has happened to Christ. So, so take us in, into verse, and here, here's that phrase again. We know, here's, here's the, we know, this is the, the, the basis for what the conclusion that's coming in verse 11. We know, what do we know about Christ in verse nine, Pastor Andrews? That Easter greeting. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And that's what we celebrate. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. It's why we, why we believe what we believe, that a man raised from the dead. I mean, when you stop and you put it that way, you stop and you think about it, and it sounds absurd to the world around us. The Christian puts their hope in everything into the idea that a man on this earth came back to life after three days. We hang our hats on that. Paul is, is basing his entire argument on that. So we died together with Christ, and now that Christ is raised, you will rise, and Christ will never die again. Christ has already beaten it. He's defeated death. Because he's defeated it, he doesn't have to face it again. You know, you think of his earthly resurrection miracles where he gave Lazarus uh, the gift of, of new life, where he raised the, the widow's son. <laughs> what a funeral procession that one was. Uh, those people died again. The earthly death. But yet Christ here has defeated death entirely. And he's not done it just for himself. He's done it for his creation. He's done it for us. He has dominion over death. Death does not have dominion over him. So dominion, rule, authority. Everything belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to death. That's another 1 Corinthians 15 resurrection chapter tie-in. Death is the last enemy to be defeated. And Jesus has defeated it. And he's done that for us. So, Pastor Andrews, we got just under five minutes here on the morning. And, and Paul Paul is, is building all this basis. This is what has happened to Christ. He has been raised from the dead. He will never die again. And that, that's a key difference, as you said, between what what is true of Christ and what was true, say, of Lazarus or the that that uh, little boy at the um, in Nain. <clears throat> so, so this death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. All of this is is coming to its its conclusion in verse eleven. Here's and this is taking us back to the that answer that we're giving to this question: Should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? He says, "So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God." In Christ Jesus. Pastor Andrews, with just under four minutes here, help us round out this text today. Yeah, it's the conclusion of the, the argument. You know, the, the initial question was, well, how should you live? Should you live for your sin? By no means. Here instead, here is what you are to do. You are dead to your sin, and you're alive to God in Christ. It's another now and not yet. I mean, we're dead to our sin, but we still sin. We're alive to Christ, but we still sin. It's, it's a now and not yet, but 
Paul encourages us to live it in its fullness now. Live as though you are in Christ now. You don't have to wait to love God. You don't have to wait to love your neighbor. You don't need to wait until you get to paradise to live the way God made you to live. You can live that way now. Um, and as repentant people who trust in the Lord, we, we, we give that our best and we sin and we ask the Lord to forgive us and we give it our best and we sin. And we ask the Lord to forgive us. And this is why we keep coming back to the Lord's Supper again and again for forgiveness and for strengthening and encouragement as we go about that work. A neat summary, a neat way for people to consider and think about the text today. Jesus lived to die, and we die to live. So Jesus took on flesh, came down into his creation. He lived for the express purpose of going to Jerusalem to die on that cross on the hill on Golgotha, to forgive your sins, to to take everything of your death away from you. Now we, as the people of God, in our baptisms— we have died in order that we may now go out and live. Not a sinful, worldly life where we look after ourselves, but instead to the intent and the purpose for what God first created us. And you think he created Adam and Eve to care for his creation. So we love our neighbor. We serve the Lord by loving the people around us. We live with Christ. We are alive in Christ, even this day. Pastor Steve Andrews is the pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Andrews, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Keep on sinning so that grace may abound by no means. Sin is the problem. Sin is the enemy. Sin is what Christ has rescued us from. Why would we keep on living as that, as if that is our ultimate controlling reality? By no means. You've been baptized. And that means you are connected to Christ Jesus, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection. Those things that are Christ's now are yours. And that, that is your defining reality in this life, not your sin, but your Savior, Jesus Christ. He's died to sin once for all, and he's been raised to new life, and death no longer has dominion over him. And because you are in him, death no longer has dominion over you. This gift is yours by faith right now, and on the last day, it will be yours by sight when Christ raises you from the dead and takes you to your eternal home with him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.